Welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast with Matthew Eels. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. You probably noticed that there was no trailer played at the beginning. Uh, well, that's because there's no trailer available yet for Sunflower, which I'm here to discuss with the film's writer, director and co-producer, Gabe Karuba. Born and raised in the suburbs of Melbourne, Gabe realised his passion for the arts from a young age when he took an interest in creative writing. Fast forward to the tender age of 15, he knew that telling stories was going to be part of his life after seeing the film Stand By Me in a Year 9 English class. At the age of 17, Gabe left school to pursue a career in acting at the film and television studio International where he studied various acting techniques. After graduating from FTV, Gabe landed his first guest role in the sci-fi Netflix drama Glitch. Two years later, Gabe graduated from the art school JMC Academy with a Bachelor in Film and Television Production. Since then, Gabe has directed two short films and crewed on, as well as starred in, countless music videos, short films, feature films and TV commercials. Sunflower is Gabe's debut feature film, which is about to complete the Golden Triangle of Film Festivals when it screens at the upcoming Cinefest Oz, following sold-out screenings at Sydney Film Festival and Melbourne International Film Festival. Sunflower follows Leo, a 17-year-old boy who struggles to understand and embrace his sexuality as he comes of age in the working-class suburbs of Melbourne's Edge. Sunflower will screen at Cinefest Oz from Friday, September 1. A general release date will be announced later in the year. I should also mention that this is the 100th episode of the Cinema Australia podcast. This podcast has been running since 2016 and I've uh, loved every minute of putting it together. Thank you to our guests and our listeners for making it all possible. Anyway, enjoy. Gabe Karuba, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It's great to have you with us. No, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a real honour. I'm a huge fan of the show. Uh, congratulations on Sunflower. Uh, this isn't the first coming out, coming of age film made in Australia, and it certainly won't be the last. But this film is unique in its vision and how it presents itself to the audience. Uh, while I was watching it, I could tell that it's quite a personal story, so I wasn't surprised to read that it is semi-autobiographical. Uh, which we'll get into later. Uh, I enjoyed the film a lot and I look forward to discussing it with you throughout this episode. Thank you. Um, So earlier, uh, just before um, we started recording, we were talking about the film festival screenings. Uh, It sold out at Sydney Film Festival and it recently sold out its MIFF screenings in three minutes. Is that correct? Did I read that right? Yeah, that that is correct. (laughs) It kind of happened so fast. I was at at home doing some admin for the film and my mum called me from from work and um, she just said to me, she was like, oh, I think I think they're sold out. And it was about three past 10. And I looked on the website and it said all the allocation was exhausted. And I thought, no, surely this is a mistake. Yeah. Surely this isn't real. Surely this is just the website is just um, stuffing up. But no, it was true. I kept refreshing the page and all my cast and crew was messaging me saying that some of their family and friends couldn't even get tickets. And I had strangers messaging the Instagram account as well, asking when another screening would be added. So yeah, it's all very surreal. 
That's quite, that's really, really unbelievable. Now you mentioned friends and family there. Had you had time to alert friends and family to get tickets or is this mostly general public? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably a mixture to be honest, because I let everyone know um, via Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. I, I let everyone know, I'd say roughly about a week in advance, maybe. I think it was, I let them know when MIF announced their program on the Tuesday evening. So I gave people um, ample time. So I think it's honestly, it's probably a mixture. And then probably, I guess some people probably thinking, oh, you know, it's it's like, it's okay if I jump on at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, there's probably still gonna be some available, which is what I was thinking as well. I wouldn't think it would have sold out that quickly. So I think, yeah, I mean, it's it's really unfortunate that some people missed out. Um, hopefully we can, we can we can get a third screening though. Yes, yeah. And uh, the film was also recently announced for Cinefest Oz here in Western Australia. Um, and, you know, it had these great screenings at the Sydney Film Festival. You must be on a real high considering the reception the film has had so far. Yeah, absolutely. And we really didn't expect any of this, to be honest, because this is, this is the first thing that I've ever made that I've been a part of that's played, I guess, so many festivals in, um, in, in Australia. And, yeah, just to be able to play Sydney and... MIF and Cinefest, it just means so much to me. And I really hope that we can, we can connect with, um, with audiences with this film. Yeah. So what were the uh, Q&As like up at Sydney? Yeah, that, like they were really, really good. We had some really, really great questions. Some unexpected mm. questions as well that you, that, I mean, I, at least I didn't expect it. Um, I can't speak for the rest of the cast and crew, but no, it was really, really great. And I think the film, uh, it's, it seemed to resonate with with audiences there. And of course, there's going to get, be people that don't like it and people that love it. But that's cinema. And I think that that's the beauty of it. Yeah, that's right. And uh, now you mentioned some questions there that you weren't expecting. What what kind of things were thrown at you? Oh, one question has to do with the time period of the film. Yes, um, yeah, someone said it felt, it felt very ambiguous. Yeah. And uh, it kind of took me off guard because I guess the argument that they were making was that there was an ET poster in the character Tom's bedroom and yeah. there were, I guess, references to pop culture throughout different um, different decades, but then they also had mobile phones. So um, I guess to, to answer that question, to me, it's just set in modern day. Um, when I originally wrote the script, I intended for it to be set in 2012 because that's when I was 16, 17 years old. Um, there I am showing my age. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, for me it is modern day, but I was shocked. I didn't expect a question like that um, asking about the, I guess, when the, when the film is set. Yeah, that, it is very interesting. And I will admit that while I was watching the film, I was trying to work out the exact time that it was set in because it isn't mentioned, but they, they are using mobile phones. He is looking at Instagram. So there's your first indication that it is today. And yeah, so he's got an ET poster in his room. I'm sitting here looking at a back to the future poster right now. So yeah. of course we can have those posters around. <laughs> we can, that's it. We can have them in modern day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, now I just want to say that I often do talk about festival screenings on this podcast because I like to emphasize for listeners who aren't directly involved in the screen industry, just how important film festivals are for Australian films. Um, mm -hmm. Because the reality is that more often than not, an Australian film's longest life for public viewing is on the festival circuit. Uh, is that a reality that you were aware of going into this whole thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I never felt that this would be a film that would necessarily get a wide release in terms of theatrical mm -hmm. uh, screenings. I'm I'm very well aware and um, very much in the reality now of, especially with speaking to distributors, it almost seems as though 
the film's life is going, at least within Australia, the theatrical life are film festivals. And yes. maybe after film festivals, you get a very small release in capital cities. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's pretty much about it. And then I guess the way of the world now is moving uh, further towards streaming yes. instead of so much um, uh, a theatrical release. Uh, so yeah, like like you were saying just then, festivals are so, so important. Um, for I guess uh, Australian independent films, um, in in terms of the, the film's life, and it also helps the film get out there and and be seen all over the world, um, which otherwise some some of us won't have the opportunity to do so later down the line. Yeah, yeah, and and a festival like Sydney and MIF, you know, they're they're so prestigious, and Sydney festivals maybe to a lesser degree. Um, but yeah, so you know, once other festivals around the world see that it has been picked up by these big festivals, it's a it's yeah. a great advantage for you. Absolutely. And I guess that's what we're hoping for now is that big international and we're in talks with, with various festivals and, and hopefully we can try and secure that and get that set in stone very, very soon. Excellent. Um, before we get started on Sunflower and, and taking a deep dive into the film, um, I'd like to go back to the beginning of your career. You've said that uh, Stand By Me had a major impact on you wanting to become a storyteller. Can you take us back to your first experience with that film and, and why it had an impact? Of course, yeah. So there's a, it's kind of a funny story with that one because uh, we were actually, so it was in, I think, I believe it was year eight English class. I think it might have been. And um, we, was, we were supposed to watch a film to study it, uh, but we were supposed to watch the film Shawshank Redemption that day. Um, and our teacher actually nearly got fired because of it, uh, I guess, because of the rating yeah. of the film. And I remember, our, uh, I think it might have been the assistant principal stormed in the room and um, took the VHS out of the VHS player and then the, the teacher got sent away and instead he put in Stand By Me. Wow. Um, and a part of me is like really, really glad that that he put that film in because if he hadn't have done that, perhaps I wouldn't be making films today. And that, that film left a real impact on me. I guess I was kind of a little bit isolated as well. I felt I felt kind of isolated when I was in year eight. I didn't really have that many friends. And so I guess the, these characters, this town, this place in time almost became a friend for me. And I became quite obsessed about the film and reading all the little bits of trivia. And, and it kind of made me want to want to tell stories. And I, I knew I wanted to do something in movies, but I didn't know how to get into that world. Being so young, uh, growing up in, in Berwick in Victoria, it's not really a place that movies are made or uh, movies are always just kind of seen on the big screen and that's and that's it that seems so far away like there's this barrier so I knew I wanted to do something in cinema after seeing that but I just didn't know how to or or what I wanted to do yeah and how much did the performances of these uh, four young actors have on you oh they had a they had a great impact on yeah. me um I remember just thinking wow how do they do that at such a young age mm. um I remember that scene, um, the scene in particular, I think more towards the the end of the film, spoilers for those that haven't seen Stand By Me yet, I think <laughs> there's been plenty of time to see it, but um, the scene when uh, uh, when, when, he, when he stumbles across the, um, the deer, um, I, I, that really left an impact on me and when he's just staring at it uh, and then obviously kind of leads him to the body there towards the end but I guess just just the adventurous nature of it all and um the time period and the production design was fantastic as well that really kind of captured me I mean a film that's made in the 80s it made me believe that 
it was the 50s. Yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, it is such a powerful film. And, yeah, I, I hope that people who are listening have seen it. Yeah, I hope so but as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so originally you set out to become an actor and you appeared in the ABC, uh, ABC series Glitch uh, yeah. and in films like Rage and Mutt, which we've covered extensively over at Cinema Australia. Uh, tell us about some of those acting experiences for you. What what were some highlights? Um, I'd say a highlight for mine was definitely Glitch. It was my first role coming out of acting school because I dropped out of high school in year 11 to pursue acting. Mm. Uh, and I guess this was me trying to find my feet. What I want to be? Do I want to be an actor? I mean, I don't think I even knew what a director did at that point uh, in my life. I just knew, like, you see an actor in a film, so that's that's what seems to be materialised in front of me. So then I'm going to be an actor. And that's what I kind of um, set out to do. And I went to acting school and studied for, for a year. Uh, and then I came straight out of acting school and found myself an agent. And that was my very first job, which actually came rather quickly. Uh, and it was such a great experience. I think um, at the time, Emma Freeman was directing uh, that episode that I was in. And I got to work alongside Sean Keenan, who has become so, like somewhat of a veteran um, <laughs> in the Australian film industry. Um, he just seems to be doing so many great things. So it was, yeah, it was great to kind of um, work alongside him and also kind of surreal because I grew up watching shows like Lucky Leonard. So mm -hmm. I couldn't really believe that I was working alongside someone that I'd grown up watching. And it, yeah, it was a fantastic experience. And then to have such, such great producers like Louise Fox and Tony Ayres at the helm, I mean, not much can really go wrong. No, no. Now you mentioned that that role came quite quickly for you. You obviously went through an audition process to get it. Yeah, I did. I did. I went through at the time the audition process was at the ABC. Um, and I, yeah, I remember going for the role and Alison Telford was, was casting and I remember being so nervous and like we did the audition and I walked out and I thought, oh, I really, really botched that, that I did not do a good job. I remember thinking that was terrible. I felt really dejected. I got home. Um, my parents asked me how did it go and I just said no there's no way that I got that I was shocking and then about a month later my agent called me and said oh you got the part <laughs> so that was I think that's that's what I learned a lot as an actor sometimes when you think you've knocked out of the park you've actually been awful and yes at times when you think you've you've, you've really stuffed it up uh you've actually done a good job in the yeah. casting director so yeah and it just goes to show you have to trust the process and you have to trust your own processes as well yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And I, I think one, one word of advice I'd give to actors is when you're going in for an audition, it's really out of your hands. I mean, yeah. all you can do is your job. And a lot of the time, sometimes the casting directors made up their mind as soon as you've walked in the room. <laughs> yes. um, and that's even coming from a director's point of view. Sometimes an actor walks in and straight away, you're just like, no, nah, this person is not right for it. I haven't even seen them rehearse yeah. or, or even do a line of the script, but they just walk in and their physicality isn't right sometimes. And um, yeah, that's certainly something that I've learned. Uh, yourself and Zane, I was just thinking, just then yourself and Zane cast uh, Sunflower. So uh, I've got a bit to ask you about that casting process later on. It'll be interesting to hear your yeah. process for that. But you mentioned working alongside Emma then, who, she, my God, as far as, you know, big talents go in Australia, She's absolutely huge. Uh, was she an influence on you wanting to uh, turn to writing and directing or when did that come about? Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I wouldn't say in that particular moment, like shooting that, I think I was a little bit too young and not mature enough um, to really consider that. But in, in hindsight, she did do some really great things with the camera that I'd never thought of. I think in one of the scenes, 
um, she got me to stare into the camera and she kept on saying, oh, we're going to, we're going to do it in 48 frames, 48 frames. And I had no idea what that meant yeah, <laughs> at yeah. the time. I was like, what is 48 frames? Um, and just, and then watching that back, I was like, oh, she means slow motion. Yes. Okay. Right. That makes sense. And, um, and just, I never would have like, I never, my brain at the time wouldn't have thought to do something like that, yes. but it's yeah, obviously a testament to her experience and her talent to, mm. to come up with something like that, to portray love between, um, two characters. And there is a little bit of that in Sunflower. So I guess you could say there was some influence, but not so much in making a decision to, to direct. I'd say the film that kind of got me to directing was I saw a film called the 400 blows. Um, by Francois Truffaut and it's a French new wave film from the late fifties. And I remember just, I don't even know how I stumbled upon it, but I would have been about maybe 18. And I remember seeing that and just being really, really moved by, by that film and thinking, Oh, maybe I'll give filmmaking a shot. Cause I was kind of falling out of love with acting as well. And I guess the path in acting is, is tough. Doesn't matter where you are in the world. It's really hard to, to break through. Yes. Um, and I certainly don't envy any actor i mean you have to work so hard and a lot of the time it it's yeah it's i mean it's 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 not even in your control what happens um so i guess that kind of made me want to get into filmmaking and that's when i applied to jmc academy um which gave me an opportunity to to study film and i went in wanting to be a writer and director through the course found myself leaning more towards cinematography oh. uh for some strange reason and then very quickly realized after about a year of doing that, that cinematography wasn't for me, something to do with the science of, I guess, light yes, and the relationship with camera and shutter speed. And just something didn't really click for me. And it wasn't, I wasn't passionate about it. I found myself stressing more than actually enjoying the process yeah. because yeah. there's that question with cinematography, how much of the look do you achieve in camera? Yes. And then how much of the look do you leave for the colorist to, yes. To manipulate so it's it's a real real tough one and i mean that's why i've just <laughs> i'd rather hire a very talented cinematographer that <laughs> understands that because i like images and i like crafting images but I, like so i like i know where i want the camera to go but i don't necessarily know how to light it yes, if that yeah. makes sense and i'd it rather really does, yeah. that to the pros mm -hmm. Would you say, will you return to acting? Or do you think it's something that you, you uh, want to go back to? I think certainly at some point, um, I think it would have to be the right role. If, if it was a friend of mine that wanted to direct something and saw me in the role, I'd absolutely do it. Um, and I, I guess if it was something that was a great opportunity, but I don't, I can't say that I want to get back into the slog of auditioning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that can be a really, really difficult process. And and I was really down on my luck when I was doing that auditioning and not getting roles. And after glitch, I mean, I really thought me being a, a naive kid at the time, I really thought that my career was going to take off from mm -hmm. there, but that's certainly not the case. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a real slog. So I don't think I want to get back into it um, to that point, to that mm -hmm. much dedication, but if something came along, I'd, I'd absolutely still give it a go. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did your producing partnership come about with Zane Borg, who's also a talented filmmaker who's, you know, making waves for himself out there? Yeah, he is. He's, he's a real talent. Um, I'd heard about Zane at the time when he was casting his first feature film, The Library Boys. Yeah. And I, um, there was a friend of mine that I grew up with in my area who was also auditioning 
um, for the film. And he's like, oh, come along, come along. So I went and did a table read and Zane's got a very, um, very unique auditioning style, much like I, where I, because you kind of empathize with actors and come from an acting background. You don't really want to just put an actor on the X in the middle of a room uh, with no windows and, <laughs> and, and one door and just say act like that's, I think that's not necessarily the best way to get a performance um, out of someone. And I guess we, I went to this table read where we, the first half of it was just talking to Zane and there were heaps of other actors there that were also reading for roles, but it never really felt like an audition. It was quite relaxed. And then doing, going through that process and um, I didn't get the role in the end. He cast the right actor for the role, <laughs> which, he, which he made the right decision. Um, and then I didn't really connect to them again for a while. And then I, that same friend that I mentioned before that introduced me to Zane, he was making a short film. And um, because he had done lighting on, on Zane's film, he did a bit of gaffing. Um, Zane wanted to return the favor on, on his short film and, and, and help him out. And I was happened to be ADing on that film and ran into Zane again. And we just started talking and he was telling me that, that, that the library boys was, was finished, but it was in post and, and they were kind of um, still working on crafting the, the film. And um, he just started sending me different variations of scenes like A and B. And then he'd say to me, which version of the scene do you prefer? Mm. And so I started kind of putting in my, um, my advice like that. And then it got to slowly, slowly, we had to do a submission for South by Southwest. And because it was a work in progress, I helped him do a little bit of a color grade because I had some knowledge um, when it came to that. So we just started working together like that. I start, and I came on in, in an associate producer role on the library boys and then through that. And then he asked me, he said, what are you working on now? And at the time I had just written the first draft of Sunflower and I sent it to him and it was, it, very, very terrible draft, by the way, as most <laughs> first drafts are. Um, but he saw something in it, thankfully. He saw yeah. something in it. And um, yeah, he just um, came back to me and he said, Gabe, this is really, really great. But I think you can change the whole second half. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and I mean, it was, re it was really, really good advice. I think I was in a very angsty period of my life. And the second half of the film was once very, very sad. And um yeah to the point where it was just probably a little bit too much yeah, yeah. and uh yeah he, ca he came in and gave me some great notes and we just kind of formed a partnership and i said to him well hey do you like can i join your company pancake originals and can we work together because i find i see a lot of people going off in their own in australia and making their own production companies yeah and i see a lot of production companies not going far and it's because like they might do one or two projects and then it kind of it kind of just stays stagnant mm. um but what i saw zane doing i was like well what's the point in going off on my own there's someone that's doing it already mm. and i want to do it so then i yeah teamed up with zane and originally was going to make the short film version of sunflower but he said no you can you can make a feature for a low budget it's totally possible yeah yeah that's that's great to hear and it sounds like this is going to be a great partnership going forward which is really exciting um, and, and it's interesting there that you just spoke about budget towards the end of your answer and, and what mm. you were saying, because I am curious about it and I don't expect you to talk, you know, figures here, yeah. but um, uh, Sunflower did receive completion funding from Queer Screen mm. um, and uh, and uh, it, it was a self-funded film. Uh, was it a self-funded film or, or was it crowdfunded or how, yeah, how, was... Was, what was the, how was the production financed? Yeah. So the film for the most part was self-financed. I was really lucky. 
I was in a really great position come the end of, um, I guess, well, the beginning of COVID for a lot of people would have been really terrible, but I just found myself in a position where I had a, I had a job and obviously I couldn't go anywhere because of the lockdown in, um, in Melbourne and, um, the, I guess money was just accumulating. So it got to a point where I hadn't, I, I, like I had close to enough and then a few other, um, private investors came on board, friends, family, um, which kind of added to the pile, which, um, helped us get the film off the ground. And we had, we had pretty much just enough to get it in the can, but not enough to qualify for the offset. Yes. So basically it was like, okay, we, we can do this for this. And, but when it gets to post, we're going to have to figure something out. And I was very, very fortunate at the time to have an editor, um, Shannon Michaelis, who was very interested in the script. I reached out to him because he'd cut a few short films that I was in. And um, he was very, very keen on the script. And he was just keen to just get like pretty much start assembling the film as we were shooting it. Yeah. Uh, because he really wanted to, do, to, I guess, cut another feature because he'd, he'd already cut two previously. Right. Um, and yeah, so I was very enough, like I was very lucky enough to have, uh, to have Shannon doing that as we were shooting, but we knew the color grade and the sound design and the music might have been a bit tough. So that's when we saw that queer screen had this funding round, um, for, for post and we submitted, I didn't really think much of it. A couple of months went by and I thought, Oh, I mean, we probably didn't get it. Um, and then, yeah, I got an email one day saying that we were successful and I had no idea what the amount was. I only found out when I got there. Um, on the night for the program launch of the uh, Mardi Gras Film Festival, mm. I think it was yeah last year's edition. Um, but yeah, no, it was uh, it was amazing. And without Queer Screen, honestly, without them, there are so many places this film wouldn't have gone, including going to the um, to the Marche du Film uh, to the market in in Cannes. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, as far as figures go, I guess we can speak about the queer screen um, funding because yes, that is public. Absolutely, it's out yep. there. It, it yes. was fifteen grand, right? It was a fifteen. It was. Yeah. Yes, it was. It was. It was the um. It was the most they'd ever given to a film, which, which really, really shocked me, and <laughs> yeah. um, I really felt so honoured because, um, Lisa Rose, who's the the festival director, she's done so much for us, and she's just an amazing human being that really cares about queer cinema um we, we also had uh paul tonta on the uh, on the jury and sue maslin and kylie washington so have... paul tonta from the mad man and, yeah, and sue yeah. maslin a, an incredible filmmaker yes, yeah. own, right? wow absolutely and they love the film and i've since had a few conversations with them and they always tell me how much they love it so honestly without them without the whole without lisa and the the queer screen team this film would not be in the position that it's in now yeah, and on screen it looks a million dollars, this movie. Oh, um, it's you. just absolutely stunning. Uh, that cinematography that you spoke about earlier is incredible. Um, and I always get extra excited when I don't see the Screen Australia logo at the beginning of the <laughs> film because I know that this is like real filmmaking. Yeah. And um, yeah. and quite often Screen Australia can have a huge influence on the end result of the film. So, yeah, it was nice to, to not see that logo at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well... I I would have loved to have had the opportunity um, to uh, to work with Screen Australia to make the film possible. Um, unfortunately, we didn't meet the the guidelines at yeah. the time. Yeah, I, I don't think I think the thing that was stopping us was the uh, one being the offset, and then two being the fact that I didn't have enough uh, director credentials um, at, at like at the time. And yeah. uh, so we were just like, okay, well, we'll just do this one by ourselves, yeah. and then ho yeah. hopefully, some point down the line, we can 
work with them and yes. we're, current, we're currently talking with them to hopefully um, get a few of our future projects off the ground with them yeah. and, and go through their development funding channels. And that's wonderful. And, you know, uh, yeah, uh, hopefully you are making films with Screen West going, uh, sorry, Screen Australia going forward. Um, mm. But yeah, it must have been, a li- it, it, I'm sure it was a liberating experience not to have that pressure of a big funding body um, yeah, riding definitely. over you. Quite often there's a lot of boxes to tick and things like this. And yeah. I mean, yeah, like absolutely. Um, I think that's that's something that's really important as well. Like I've heard some horror stories, even with like big production companies mm-hmm. and and um, these big shot producers trying to take advantage of of uh, first time mm-hmm. directors. I think we've we've all heard that story about yeah. Todd Field and um, Harvey Weinstein trying to cut his first first film, and I think that would just be so so stressful. Um, yes. So it, it definitely was nice to have the creative freedom and for Zane and I to to make this film without that pressure. Yes. Um, so let's get stuck into the film itself. Um, I'm really keen to start talking about this. Um, I guess I want to start with uh, something that I read in your director's statement, and um, it's a line that you say, which is, growing up I felt alone and isolated as if I was the only teenage boy struggling with my thoughts and feelings. I spent countless nights crying to myself to sleep, uh, wishing that one day I'd wake up cured of my gayness. Um, uh, at the beginning of this episode, I mentioned uh, that Sunflower is semi-autobiographical. Can you tell us about those autobiographical elements in the film and, and how that comes through? Yeah, of course. Um, so I guess with the, I mean, I, I really wanted to, to make a film to get a lot of things off my chest and there's many things in the film that that are true to what happened to me and also things that aren't true necessarily what happened to me that yeah. i know have happened to um to other gay men um growing up so yeah i guess those those autobiographical elements um it was it was tough at first trying to get those on the page because you realize at some point um i'm gonna have to make this and you know when you do that you open yourself up to to a whole audience to people and then i guess um i, I even got questions at the sydney q a like asking exactly what was real and 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 what and what wasn't um and so i'd say about in terms of the um the film what is real i'd say about 70 percent of the film wow. is um is, is true to my own experience and then of course there's some poetic influence as well yeah. Yeah, um, that, that's a great answer. So, so the, the the film is set at school. Um, you know, it's a, the main character has got this group of friends. So, I'm wondering, what was a typical without you know, obviously getting as personal as you'd like to hear? What was a typical day at school like for you during that time? Yeah, it was really really tough to be honest. It was um, it was and maybe even um, I guess a lot tougher than what's actually portrayed in the film. Wow. Um, wow. So I think, yeah, it just depended on, on the day or, or it even depended what year level I was in. Year seven wasn't so bad because I think you're still kind of coming out of grade six and you're still kids and very naive to everything. But I think it kind of turns a little bit when I guess your social standing in that hierarchy um, kind of changes and some people become cool and, and others aren't so cool. And um, if, you know, anyone notices that you're a little bit different um, they'll just kind of tear you to shreds and pick on you. And sometimes you have to join in when they're picking on someone else to, to just so you're not the subject um, for once. Uh, so, yeah, it was really, really difficult, to be honest, like especially in the, um, in the boys' locker room. And, I mean, that's a really, really difficult way to kind of discover your sexuality when you don't, like you kind of don't realise that um, 
that you're fine just the way you are you yeah. you kind of think oh hang on what's going on here this is weird i'm not supposed to like guys i'm supposed to like girls and it can definitely be a very 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 confusing time would you say that writing the film was a cathartic experience for you absolutely absolutely it was i think it was so important for me because i started writing it just after i'd come out to my family and friends so that was it was such an important part um for my coming out because obviously i don't want to you know sit there and talk people's ears off about um everything like my experience and everything that happened as much yeah. as i really yeah. wanted to at the time because you yeah. spend so much time bottling it up that all you want to do is talk to people about your experience when you get the chance but i thought the best way to do that was to just write a script about it you're listening to the cinema australia podcast on soundcloud spotify apple podcasts or at cinemaaustralia.com.au there are some challenging moments in this film and people might you know australia has progressed somewhat but people might not fully understand you know just how challenging challenging something like this can be for a young person um so i guess i want to ask you how far do you think australia has come in accepting the lgbtqia plus community over time i mean despite the progress it appears that many young individuals are still facing similar challenges to what you experience here would would you agree with that yeah, I would. I would. I mean, I haven't, I haven't been back to talk to kids in high schools in a long time. I think the closest thing that I had to that was my last experience, which was about 10 years ago. So in terms of the high school um, hierarchy and that, that experience, I can't, I can't speak on what it's like now for yeah. kids, but I think yeah. it also differs from area to area. I've heard um, like people that, that I'm friends with now that went to school in the city uh, didn't, see or experience any homophobia at all yeah um so i think it's very it's, it's really interesting that it depends what kind of what area you're in mm. and um i guess my area being kind of semi-rural and um, a little bit more isolated the school that i went to um, but i'd say we have made some progress but i think even the fact that it had to go to a um that it even had to go to a postal vote just to get things moving for marriage <laughs> equality for example i think that in itself is is like i don't know for me it, it, to be honest it did annoy me a little bit i was yeah. just kind of thinking what a waste of money yes. like this is just ridiculous that yeah. we have to like just get it done yes. <laughs> i don't understand why we have to spend this this much money on something i mean it's a, it was a survey yeah so i i think we have progressed somewhat but not enough um to the point when i still see people being called homophobic slurs, even in the CBD yes, <laughs> on the yeah. street, like a two men might walk by holding hands and someone feels the need to say something or stare at them or, mm, mm. um, so I do think we have progressed somewhat and Hey, maybe it's just the people that are disapproving of this are just very, very loud. Yes, maybe yes, that there aren't yes. that many of them. Maybe they're just, they feel the need to, um, to voice, I guess their opinions. Um, <laughs> I guess in a much, uh, that's what I'm looking for in a, in a much more aggressive way. Yeah. I um, think you've certainly hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think we have made some progress, um, to a degree, but I think there's obviously still a very long way to go. Um, mm. and, um, all I can say is thank God for all the trailblazers that went through a lot of crap. Um, I guess in their fifties, sixties, seventies, and especially the eighties, mm. I mean, um, that must've been a really, really difficult time. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for answering that uh, so well there. I really appreciate it. Um, throughout the film, there are shots of this wonderful uh, sunflower field. Can you tell our listeners about the significance of the sunflower in this film if, in case they're sitting there listening and wondering? Sure. Um, the sunflower field is something that came up a little bit later in the writing process. Initially, the film was titled 15 and then it became 17. And then it didn't become Sunflower, I think, until maybe the last two drafts. And it's because I was kind of looking, I wanted to experiment with something, I guess, um, in more of a, a freeway in, in the same way that, I guess, Italian neorealist and French New Wave films um, use certain things as metaphors. Yeah. And um, I remember thinking, oh, what can I do? And we had so many different, and we, we, we even had a nod to um, Fellini's Eight and a Half at some point. Mm um in in the film but then i remember thinking oh i don't i don't think that's going to work um and then i i for some reason i couldn't get um my i guess my mind off the idea of a sunflower and there is actually a lot of uh, significance to that in um i guess looking at a sunflower when it's when it hasn't bloomed yet it can be quite an ugly looking flower yes yeah um and that's my experience growing up i felt really ugly inside and and i guess you know um, if the, the metaphor was a flower, I would have been a sunflower that hadn't have bloomed yet. But when a sunflower does bloom and it does come into itself and accept itself and, and feels loved by itself and others, it can, it's, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful looking flower. So that's how the, the sunflower metaphor kind of came about. And what a beautiful metaphor. It's, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. And God, yeah, the sunflower is quite a beautiful flower once it has bloomed. Yeah, absolutely, and um, and it also it looks amazing in a field when you've got <laughs> when you when you when you've got a subject just strolling through it, just looks it looks beautiful, and um, yeah, free free production design. So if you can get down to a sunflower field filmmakers, I really 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 um implore that. Where is that field exactly? Uh it's a it's a really really great sunflower field, and I actually should should give them a shout out. Um, it's called Pick Your Own Sunflowers, and it's in Dunstown. Um, and so I think it's Dunstown. Yeah. So it's Dunstown, not too far from Ballarat. Um, and it's in, yeah, the countryside of Victoria, really, really beautiful place. And the flowers usually bloom around February cause oh, we yeah. had to, so we, we had to wait to shoot. Um, so the sunflower field was day 30 for us, but oh, wow. day 30 for us, we had a massive gap because we were waiting for these, these sunflowers to bloom. So we had to move, um, a few things around, but they were great. Um, the whole team there and they, and they let us shoot there free of charge. And they were just fantastic. They were just excited that someone was coming with the camera to capture their, that really beautiful landscape. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just keep thinking about how wonderful it does look on screen. You captured it perfectly. Um, I would talk about this next question anyway, but, but it really is impossible to discuss this film without talking about this incredible cast of young actors who you've Mm. assembled here, because wow, that every single one of them is a standout. Um, Obviously we can't sit here and talk about everyone, but (laughs) there are a few that I want to discuss in particular. Um, Both yourself and Zane cast the film, which I mentioned before, um liam is exceptional here the the lead actor Uh, Mm. what stood out for you about liam during that casting process so i knew liam previously because he was actually an actor in um, my grad project when i was at university and um he came when he came in an audition for that he was about 18 at the time um so that was was quite a few years before we even considered casting for um for Sunflower and I remember writing the script and the whole time I just couldn't think of an actor 
to um to play this role and then when we got to the end of it um i was like oh i need a kid that's italian um can pass for 17 but i need him to be over 18 because there, there can be a lot of difficulties when working with uh with minors you've only got them for a certain amount of hours mm. per day so it would have just been easier to cast someone um over 18 and then i was like oh liam would actually be perfect for this he's really really talented i remember he blew me away on that audition did a great job um on the grad project and i just picked up the phone i called him and i said hey would you be interested in um in t in taking a look at the script he read it he loved it um and he insisted on sending a self-tape even, even though i didn't really <laughs> want him to send a self-tape because i knew he was he was good for the, the part um but he insisted on sending one and he performed a monologue that actually isn't even in the film anymore um and he, i mean he, he did an amazing job with it and it was pretty much a no-brainer casting him so yeah Excellent. And I should mention his last name there. I just realized I didn't say it. It's Mollica, right? Liam, Liam Mollica? Yeah, yes. Yep, yeah, correct. Yep. Wonderful. Um, yeah, what a standout performance in this film. You, you just, I just imagine him going very far in his career. Yeah, I think without a doubt he will. I think he's going to do amazing things in his career. I've always um, thought, even before shooting this film, every time I'd see him, I'd go, how, how isn't this kid famous yet? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I always think, and there's so many actors that I think, about that uh, so many actors i know and i'm like oh my god how are you not famous yet and i just think this country like famously underutilizes our talent oh 100%. Uh, and, and a lot of the time we see the same faces on screen and i think it would yep. be nice to, if we took risks on fresher faces because there are so many wonderful actors that are so talented and it just shocks me all the time uh, I think if you went back 50 episodes of this podcast um, and and listened to episodes prior to that 50th episodes, I used to bang on about it all the time yeah. because yep. we constantly see the same faces. I remember one time I was watching commercial TV. I must have been doing something else. And I turned it on to Channel 9, Channel 7, and then ABC. And it was one <laughs> night the same actor was in every show on all three channels. It may have been Richard Roxburgh. I can't remember. And I love Roxburgh. I'll watch him in anything. But, yeah, it, it just goes back to that point that, you know, we've got actors out there like Liam. Let's utilise them. Absolutely. And I think I've actually heard that episode before. As I mentioned, I've, I've listened to the show for a long time. So I yeah, think I yeah. may have actually listened to that episode because it rings a yeah. bell. Yeah. And I banged on about it so much. I thought, okay, I've got to stop talking about it now. But hey, 50 episodes later, I can bring it up again. And I probably Why will not? again That's in the it. future as well. That's um, it. I really do have to mention Luke Morgan as well, because mm. he's a Perth actor who I've had quite a lot to do with over the years. Um, I've done a lot of Q&As and interviews with him and, and live film screenings. Uh, mm. The last Last time I saw Luke, we ended up at a pub together, actually drinking, huh. talk, talking about nice. the movies that he wants to make, um, because he's such an active member of the, you know, the screen community in Australia, doing his own things and and things like this. And people may not know from his performance that Luke started out in comedy before uh, taking on more dramatic roles. Um, for listeners, I recommend you check out Yeah Nah on YouTube yes. for a laugh, which, which Luke's in. Um, tell us about working with Luke because he is a funny guy. Um, you know, he's quite comedic, but he, he, he plays a very dramatic role, really, when you get to the essence of this uh, character. Yeah, yeah, Luke's fantastic. Uh, so we we actually met Luke at the, I think Zane had a screening of the Library Boys, um, a cast and crew screening at... Um, I might have been at the Sun in Yarraville, and Luke came to that screening. And at the time, we were casting Sunflower, and I think at that point he'd only been in Melbourne for maybe a year. Yeah. And um, 
Yeah, I'm, I mean, I met him briefly and Zane said to him, without me knowing, Zane went up to Luke and, and said, oh, you, you might be right for this role. Um, come and read for it. And originally it was for the role of Tony, which, um, which Dylan now, now plays. Um, but so, so anyway, so Luke came in for the role and we spoke to him for ages and he just, he just has this kind of uh, magnetic presence. Yeah. And um, we were talking to him and, and he, he, so he read for the role of Tony and something wasn't quite right. I was like, oh, I'm just not sure that, that he's right for this. I just, he's just missing something for Tony. Like he's, he's good. Don't get me wrong. I remember saying to Zane, he's really, really good, but he's just not right for Tony. And then he, um, I remember he left and we thought about it for a little bit. And then we originally had another actor that was cast to play Buff, but had to pull out um, because it just wasn't working because they were in Tasmania. And I was a bit worried about flying them to to melbourne and then if if another lockdown happened i was very unsure about all of that um so then zane said well why not get luke to come in and, and read for buff and i was like yeah perfect awesome so luke came in and the minute he said the first line i was like yep that's <laughs> that's him yeah. um so yeah he's fantastic and he yeah he is so active in in the screen the australian screen community and um he has he has a great TikTok page where he makes so many crafty little videos on there so he's, he's also a very talented writer and a very talented filmmaker as, yes. as well as an actor yeah now isn't it amazing watching luke's performance in in this film he he really has this power to change the atmosphere of a scene just with the look of his eyes mm. um you know he he almost changes to a different character with this one look uh i don't want to give too much away but mm. yeah uh, do you agree with that I do. Absolutely. He has, like I was saying, he's so magnetic yeah. in the room and it's definitely something, there's always something happening, like happening in his eyes. And I think mm-hmm. that's so important to have when you're acting on the screen is to just stay present. And that's what he is. He's present yeah. every single time. And sometimes he's even present before you call, call action. He's just wow. ready to go. Yeah. Um, and he's also very great at improvising. Yes. <laughs> he's a fantastic improviser. There are many scenes in the film that, that he strays from the dialogue. And that's something that I do when I'm directing as well is I don't really rate my own writing that much. And I always say to the actors, if something doesn't feel right, just change the line. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, he's, he's fantastic at that. Mm. Um, now, as I mentioned, we could, you know, talk about every actor here and I'd love to, yeah. but, um, you know, it's just a time thing. But I guess the final piece of casting that I do want to talk about is Leo's mother and father because mm. they mm. are quite a vital part of this film. Even though their their role's quite small, um, they really mm. are a vital part of it. Um, they, they they just added another dimension to this film considering, considering their age, um, you know, and the fact that they do play such a vital role. Can you tell us a bit about that casting? Yeah, absolutely. So with the the, the dad Frank, um, who's played by Sal um, Galifaro, um, he I, I saw him get up and do a monologue in an acting class at the Melbourne Actors Lab, which um, is run by Peter Carlos. And he got up and did a monologue, and he was playing a priest. Um, and I just thought, ah, oh, there's something that's happening um, in this guy's face. There's just something in his eyes, and he just looked so menacing. Um, and I was like, that's the perfect intensity for an Italian father. <laughs> and, um, I, and then I, I didn't really approach him just yet. I was still writing the script at the time and I just reached out to him and I, I don't even think I auditioned him because I'd seen him work so many times in, in class that I just knew that, that he was fine for the role. Um, and so, yeah, I just reached out to him and he read the script and loved it. And, and that's how I got to connecting with, with Sal, um, 
for this role. And then with Diana, um, Diana was, I, I mean, it was just kind of like a bit of a fluke because the original actor that we had lined up to play the role of Rosa, um, unfortunately at the time wasn't comfortable with, um, with getting the vaccine and we just had no choice but to recast. Yes. Um, so Diana was kind of out, out of luck. We were, uh, like I, I think we, we searched the ends of the earth <laughs> to find a mother for this film. It took us a very, very long time. We auditioned many, many actors, very, very good actors as well. Um, but I remember originally auditioning her, um, via zoom and, um, her audition was pretty good. And then we, we brought her in the room and did a chemistry read with Liam and Sal. And I believe it was the scene, um, for audiences who wouldn't have uh, seen it yet, but the scene um, when uh, I think it's just after a really pivotal moment when they're in the kitchen and they're arguing about something that's just happened to Leo. Yeah. And um, we, we auditioned that scene and she was um, like, she just did an amazing job and she took direction so well. Yeah. I remember I'd tell her something and she just, she just do it. Uh, like she just had this way of accessing her emotions. Yeah. She's, she's a very empathetic person as well, which was perfect for the character of Rosa. So that's how we, we ended up getting to cast um, Diana. Wonderful. They're, they're both so terrific in this film. They really, they really are. stand out. Yeah. Um, so this is your first feature film that you've directed. Tell yeah. us about some of the challenges of making your first feature film. Oh, where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> Many challenges. I think um, scheduling yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was a very big challenge. And obviously Zane and I worked very closely with scheduling the film because obviously you want the luxury of shooting in order, but that's not always the case. For example, you've only got the high school for a four day block. So yes, you've yeah. got to shoot all the high school scenes in, in those four days. But I'd say another big challenge was actually even just, even though I came from an acting background, just kind of on the first take allowing actors to just do what they had in mind initially, yeah. Yeah. because they might do something, and it takes you by surprise and you're like, oh, well, that's, that's better than what I had in mind. Um, so sometimes their first take, actually a lot of the time, their first take is actually um, really good. And I think another challenge, um, or I'd say working in public spaces. And I think a lot of the time when you're trying to pull a bit of a dodgy and you're shooting somewhere without a permit, like on the street, um, especially in a place like Berwick where there's people don't really see film cameras yeah, yeah. <laughs> around um, very often people come up to you and ask a lot of questions and they think you're trying um, to do something mm -hmm. and you, like, you're just trying to explain to them. No, mm -hmm. we're just shooting a movie. There's nothing dodgy happening here. Yeah. Um, so I found that to be challenging, trying to get people locals to understand um, that we're just shooting a film. And I think there was one point, there's a point in the film where um, we're shooting on a basketball court and there was a fight scene and a couple of locals must've seen it outside their window. Didn't, didn't clock the camera or the massive flags <laughs> that Martine <laughs> had set up, which I don't, I don't know how you don't see those. Um, but they thought it was a real fight and they called the cops. And as soon as the cops showed up, they got out of the car, saw us, and just turned back around and got back in the car and just left because they because they saw we had cameras, so they just knew straight away that that it wasn't an issue. Um, so yeah, I think that that was that was a very very big challenge. I'd say working, um, yeah, with that and also the limitations with budget. Sometimes you know, like I think there was a scene we wanted to shoot it on a school bus, 
and it was like well we can't get the school bus <laughs> to, to just drive around because of budget restrictions so instead we decided to set it on um in a skate park yeah so it's just kind of like i think it's it's embracing those limitations which is something that zane taught me he's like gabe just embrace the limitations because a lot of the time those limitations are better than the idea you had yes. for the the bigger budget thing because the bigger budget thing everyone's seen that right but if you yeah. shoot something that's that's different because of budget restraints then um i guess it, it becomes a refreshing idea because people haven't seen it as much yes yeah um very good advice there um I, I have a few more questions here for you a couple more questions of course um earlier we mentioned some of the films that had an impact on you growing up was there a significant stabbing night of the living dead playing in the cinema during that cinema scene so <laughs> that's it's really really funny you mentioned that initially no <laughs> initially it was because it was creative commons yeah <laughs> and we were like we need originally we had just as a piss take my editor shannon and i decided to put a scene from twilight in there playing over the top we're like oh it'd be funny as if we just had this but then we were like okay we actually need to be serious when we got to the sound designing aspect of it with our sound designer michael zakarayu uh, we realized very, very quickly that, okay, we obviously can't use this because it's, 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 it's copyright and we can get in a lot of trouble. So then we were kind of going through the internet, trying to find something and Night of the Living Dead came up. And then as we were putting it in, when we were mixing the film, remember Michael dropped it into the mix and he happened to drop it in at the exact time code where they, they're talking about the zombies and I think someone's just been bitten and they're yeah. talking about how he's you know like a problem or he's like an infection yes and yeah. he's dangerous yeah. and it happened to come just as leo was looking back at the screen after looking at that that couple yeah. sitting in front of him and i was like oh my god that's so unintentionally perfect because Absolutely it kind of perfect. matches with how society is viewing him as like yeah. this disease because he's other yes um and i was like that's and, and it's, it's 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 essentially how he feels he feels like he's disgusting yeah. he's this thing that doesn't that doesn't quite fit into all of these groups. Yeah. I mean, including his family life, which is devastating. So I think that it kind of worked out. It just honestly, it just happened. I wish I wish that we could take the credit for that, but oh, it worked it out so of, well. It did. It did, and it's it's just a bit of a fluke that he happened to drop it in the timeline at that exact part of the um of of where that dialogue starts in the film unbelievable it was meant to be yeah. and i wasn't i actually was going to remove that question i didn't know if i should ask it just in case there was no significance but i'm really glad that i did yeah no no it's a really really good question i'm actually really glad you asked it as well oh, good good yeah great answer um I, I i guess i understand why you did it creatively but but tell us about the creative decision to use two aspect ratios here um have yeah. you seen that somewhere before and uh, that inspired you to do it or, or where, how did that come about so it was something I, I had seen it before in um, a couple of Xavier Dolan's films. Um, I'd seen it in Mummy, um, and that's obviously that film is is a fourth wall break. It very obviously opens up. Uh, but it was something that I'd spoken about with uh, our cinematographer Martin Wolf, and um, we originally didn't shoot the film in that aspect ratio. We just shot the whole film in one eight five. But then in the editing process, when we were cutting. Um, I walked in one day and Shannon was like to me, Oi, just check this out. And he showed me um, the whole film and he'd gone through and reframed everything um, to match, I, I think it was 35 mil, I think the to match the sensor of a 35 mil camera. And I was like, oh, that's quite pretty. And it, it almost feels like this film 
should have been framed like this. Um, and I now looking back, I can't believe that we didn't just set out to do it from the beginning, but it was something that was, that we discovered later in post and the, the, the images just seemed so intimate. Um, and then, then we started thinking about, well, could it open back up again? And it was that moment I thought, well, it has to be that moment when, um, Leo and Tom, um, kiss for the first time because yeah. I was like, well, that it just has to be that moment because his world opens up. Right. And then that montage that follows of the sunflower field. Now we can actually see the entire field yeah. and we can see all the flowers. So that's something that came later. And I spoke to uh, Martine about it. Um, I obviously got a blessing <laughs> to continue before, before making a decision like that. But we did talk about it a lot and Martine felt that it was, um, it was a fantastic idea. Yeah. Um, as well so yeah thankfully we, we decided to go through with it because I actually really really like it now yes and so you should it's it's absolutely beautiful um, yeah I really enjoyed that part um, uh, in the end credits I noticed that Michael Nickel is thanked and uh, Michael yeah. has just released his own incredible debut feature film as writer director called Slant yes um, it's a, such a great film and I it urge everyone to see it yeah uh, can you tell us about Michael's contribution to the film and, and how he played a part yeah, so um, Michael helped out a lot when we were applying for the Queer Screen um, grant because he had also received it uh, for Slant the year before. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, so Michael and I, um, I know I know Michael because we went to the same acting school together. Yeah. Um, and so when I dropped out of high school and went to acting school at the Film TV Studio International in South Melbourne, I think it was at the time. Um, yeah, I, I met him there and. Um, and ever since we graduated from there, we, we'd just been talking on and off. And I heard he was making this film slant and we were gearing up to shoot, shoot Sunflower. And then when it came to, um, to post-production of Sunflower and applying, trying to get the money to finish the film, I just happened to go out for dinner um, with him and he was talking to me and he said, oh, you should, you should apply it to Queer Screen's post fund. And he kind of helped me with the application in a way where he kind of told me, you know, nice, like really, really good things that I can write about the film, like things that he'd put in there with the application. Um, so yeah, he's, he's definitely in there cause he, cause he helped us a lot in the, in that application process. Oh, that's wonderful. And it's another thing that I bang about, bang on about a lot in this podcast is the importance of community when it comes to filmmaking. Um, you know, it's, it's some of the best advice that I think I could ever give a filmmaker is to, you know, to get out there and introduce yourself to people, form networks, become a part mm. of a community because, you know, you, you've just proved it there and, and with some of your other answers to questions that I've asked. Mm, oh, absolutely. Community is so important. And um, every, every writer, director or any filmmaker, regardless of what, like what role you're in, you really have to find your people. Yeah that you like to work with. And um, for me, like I, it's really tough for me to see myself shooting with any other cinematographer other than Martine, <laughs> because she's so easy to communicate with. Um, she has great instincts. She just does things with the camera where I haven't even asked her to do it and she'll just do something. And I'll be like, oh my God, I, d I didn't even think of that. And she's just done an amazing job. Uh, we hadn't even discussed that, but she's just gone and done it. And it looks amazing. Um, so yeah, just so people like that, uh, I recommend and Zane producing this film and all the actors that were a part of it, even, you know, right down to the assistant cameras and focus pullers and gaffers. I think you really need to find a community of people that you trust and that, that you like working with. And if you don't like working with someone, then um, 
I think it's important to, to not work with that person yeah, and find yeah, someone that, yeah. you, that you do like working with. And I always say to film students, it's tough when you're in film school because sometimes you're forced to collaborate with people that you might not really get along with. But I think it's important once you get out of that, that, um, that part in your filmmaking journey that you, that you find the people that you really want to work with and that you get along with. Yes, yeah. And uh, also, I'm so glad that you've uh, been able to mention Martine a few times here in that cinematography, because as I said, it re- <laughs> really does look a million dollars. And I didn't have any uh, questions directly you know, focused on the cinematography, but you have mentioned it a few times now. So I'm mm. glad you got the opportunity to do that. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, she's, um, she's, she did an amazing job with it. And that cinematography is really something like yeah. I, um, yeah, she kind of brings this, I think a lot of people have said to me that the film feels a little bit European. It does. Um, and I think it's because, well, she's actually from Luxembourg and um, she went and studied film in, in London uh, for two years and then moved here to Melbourne. So I think that really comes across the films that we spoke about that were inspirations for Sunflower. A lot of them were films set in Europe or by European directors. And they kind of have that, that sensibility, that kind of framing and, and that, and that stability. A lot of the time the film is locked off on sticks and mm-hmm. then the camera only really moves and comes off the sticks when required, making those very deliberate choices and those shots that become centerpieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I've got a final question here that I, I ask every one of my guests on this podcast, and and that is, uh, have you seen any Australian films lately that have stood out for you? Yes, I've recently <laughs> rewatched The Devil's Playground. Oh, fantastic! Um, I'd say it's one of my favourite Australian films. Or actually, one of one of my favourite films of all time. Yeah. Um, I think it's amazing, and if I ever met uh, Fred Skepsi, I think I'd pass out. <laughs> yes. Um, I think I think it's a wonderful film. And uh, yeah, I recently recently rewatched it because I'm actually writing a film now with with Luke Morgan. We're writing it together. We're writing it about it's it's about two twelve year old boys. So I was like, oh, I want to get back into that that headspace of like what like childhood and um and uh, yeah, it's 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 about you know defying um, parental figures and stuff. Which I think that film is is perfect research yeah. um, for that. So that's something that I that I watched um, recently. Um, in terms of new Australian films, I guess I had a chance to see Shader um, yes. uh, a while ago. So that was, yeah, really, really great experience as well. And I'm, one I'm actually really excited to see is Bird Eater. Oh, yes. I'm so excited to see that film. <laughs> it um, looks so good. It looks amazing. Zane yeah. and I met the producer, Steph Troost, um, when we were in Cannes, and we just kind of hit it off and really got along with her. Yeah. Um, and yeah, she's she's going to be in Melbourne um, for MIF as well. So I'm ho- I'm hoping they can get a third screening up and going. Yes, that would be amazing. So I can I can catch it because both the screenings um, kind of fell around the same time as the Sunflower screenings. Yes, yeah. Um, so it was a little bit difficult to try and get a ticket for those, but uh, that's one that I'm super excited about and amazing to see that they sold out as well. <laughs> it's so good. And um, the film's also playing at Cinefest Oz as well. So you, you might yes, have it actually, actually will. That's a yeah. Yeah, very, very good point. <laughs> there you go. Um, Gabe, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I can't thank you enough for sharing these stories with us and I look forward to sharing them with our audience. Uh, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. Thank you so much, Matthew. I really appreciate it, mate. Thanks for listening. Find all the latest Australian film news at cinemaaustralia.com.au. You can follow Cinema Australia on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube and TikTok.